I'm Rasa Kate, and I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Kostick. He's the director of the Thoracic Surgery Program at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey. And we're going to focus on another part of Deborah's purview, the lungs, in particular lung cancer and how it's treated here at Deborah. Now, Dr. Kostick, I spent some time looking at the American Cancer Society's cancer facts and figures. So ACS predicts the most common site for new cancer diagnoses this year in men will be, ding, 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 lung cancer. In women, most common cancer diagnosis will be breast cancer, followed by lung cancer. So that's diagnosis. As for fatalities, the American Cancer Society says the top cancer killer for both men and women is still lung cancer. You know, it comes up in conversation when a celebrity um, announces they've got cancer, and someone asks, oh, what kind? You hear, you hear lung cancer, everybody says, ooh. You know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, still today. You hear lung cancer, you think hopeless. But you are here to say not necessarily. Although the news of being diagnosed with any type of cancer, in particular lung cancer, can be devastating for the patient, it is by far not a death sentence. There are medical experts that are working continually to improve both the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of this disease. So how are we doing then? Because those stats from American Cancer Society sound pretty grim. Although we've made great advancements in treating the disease, lung cancer still remains the number one cancer mortality for men and women in the United States, as you had mentioned. It is estimated that over 150,000 people in the, uh, in the U.S. will lose their life due to lung cancer this year alone. And that's going to account for about a quarter of all cancer deaths in the U.S. So let's break it down a bit. Lung cancer is deadly partly because it can go undetected for long periods of time. Why is is the detection still such a struggle? And that's one of the problems with the disease itself. Our lungs are encased in the rib cage, and then overlying that are the muscles from the chest and the back. So we can't actually see or feel these masses. This unfortunately allows them to grow to greater size before they start to show any symptoms at all. And that makes most of the patients being found, unfortunately, in the later stages of the disease rather than in the early stages where cures are more well accomplished. Early detection would involve x-rays and CT scans, and that carries the risk of unnecessary radiation. In terms of determining the urgency for treatment and what you're dealing with when someone comes in with lung symptoms, stubborn lung symptoms, what could possibly indicate to you lung cancer before you even go for imaging? Well, number one, we have to go with the history of smoking. Smoking has been causally indicted in lung cancer in up to 90% of the cases. And unfortunately, that also includes secondhand smoke. So anybody with persistent lung symptoms and a history of smoking, lung cancer must be first on our radar. Is there ever a watch and wait phase for suspected lung cancer? Yes, there is. In this day and age, CAT scans are used quite frequently, especially in every emergency room. And now that's Fortunately and unfortunately, open Pandora's box for us. We see now lots of very small masses in the lungs that we are unsure to their certainty as to whether or not they are cancer. And there's a criteria established by the American College of Radiology that states that on the size and some of their characteristics that we can actually wait and watch some of these masses and see if they develop any other signs that may be more concerning for cancer. Without any kind of screening or an image or uh, those kinds of findings, is there a particular kind of cough 
Are there other combinations of symptoms that should cue someone beyond the the history, the medical history of the smoking or, or whatever, that this isn't just a really stubborn case of bronchitis or, or a really horrible cold? Well, I think you've hit it on the head. It's that persistence. So a persistent dry cough, that's really not explained by any other of the, of the me- diseases that you mentioned. Unexplained pain in the chest that otherwise is not attributed to your normal everyday aches and pains that one might get maybe all symptoms that something is brewing inside the chest. What are the ways we diagnose lung cancer when somebody comes in with these symptoms that have to get checked? What's think, their experience? I think initially a chest x-ray seems to be the initial tool that most doctors go to, but unfortunately there are up to 50% false positives when it comes to a chest x-ray. It may be a good screening tool, but it's a very general type of x-ray. So currently in the United States we're relying on a chest CAT scan in order to further elucidate and identify these lesions, which may be more concerning for lung cancer. So let's talk about treating lung cancer. What's the first line of defense then, medically? Medically is usually one of the first options we have for the patient, and that not only consists of standard chemotherapy, but there are two new therapies available uh, that are on the horizon, which may have a great impact on the treatment for lung cancer. The first is immune therapy, where drugs are given that actually stimulates the patient's own immune system to help fight the disease. And the others referred to as targeted therapies, where drugs are given that specifically attack a protein or a gene on the cancer cell, leaving normal tissue unaffected. Are there downsides to this? I'm thinking the immunotherapy, which essentially takes the brakes off your immune system. If you have a patient who is immunocompromised in some way or, or has an autoimmune disease where the immune system is already overreacting, that may not be the right treatment for them if they're also unlucky enough to develop lung cancer. That is true. Each treatment of lung cancer must be tailored to the patient's specific needs and conditions. One of the things we do worry about with almost any type of therapy medically given to the patient is that of incurring other infections and other disease processes that go along with the treatment, unfortunately. Okay, so first line of defense would be, or offense against lung cancer, I'm thinking, would be the medical, pharmacological treatments, chemo and immuno, all the, these things that you, you described. And if they don't work, is that then the time for surgery? It can be. Again, this is a disease where we must tailor the treatment to fit the patient and not the other way around. So sometimes the surgical aspect becomes just as important as the medical aspect. So I guess if you saw the imaging and saw the well-defined masses and there was the option of, well, we can try and shrink this with chemo, et cetera, and put you through all that, or we can get that out easier, faster, quicker, and send you on your way. Is that the way that might work? I guess what I'm asking is it's, it's not as though there is a standard protocol. We try to hit them with medicine before we go with the surgical option, or sometimes imaging is going to indicate surgery is the best experience for the patient. As I think is true with a lot of cancers, surgical removal is always a treatment of choice and that it can be either bolstered by in addition to or helped by the addition of chemotherapy or radiation therapy as well. All right. Again, all like what you were saying, all of that tailoring it to the specific patient yes. and their specific presentation of lung cancer. So you use a minimally invasive approach with the acronym of VATS. So tell us about VATS. VATS stands for Video Assisted Thoroscopic Surgery, and it is a minimally invasive approach 
to perform the same standard operations that we perform for decades. This is something that you specialize in. I do. The traditional approach to lung cancer surgery, in fact, any surgery with inside the chest, was to often make an incision up to a foot long, spread the ribs to get into the chest cavity, and then perform the operation. With the advent of more minimally invasive techniques, that's surgery, we only make several one-inch incisions in the patient's chest and use a camera and instruments that fit inside the chest through the small holes to perform the same operations. How long have we been doing VATS in this country? In different forms. It started in the early 1990s, um, but was slow to be adopted by the thoracic surgeons. When you think about the chest cavity with the heart and the major arteries of the body in there, there's very little room for any sort of error to be performed. That could lead to a fatal outcome. So actually, we had to wait for technology to catch up to us, and now we have instruments that can actually staple and seal off major blood vessels that can close sections of lung without any deleterious effect to the remaining lung to be invented before we could perfect this technique. Working on the lungs, as in working on the heart, that's a moving target. You know, it's not like you can shut the lungs off to perform surgery. How do you work around that? Well, actually, we do. We shut down only one lung for the operation. In order to use the minimally invasive approach, we need room to work. Our anesthesiologists are specialized in placing a breathing tube, an endotracheal tube during surgery, that only allows air to go into one lung, thus leaving the side we are operating on no longer functioning during the operation. I never knew that. I think that's way cool. <laughs> Very good question. That was so interesting. Well, in speaking of mats, and it's minimally invasive and smaller incisions and, and all the advantages for the patients. There are several. In, in avoiding the foot-long incision and the rib spreading, my patient's hospitalization, which was traditionally a week or more, is now down to only two or three days in the hospital. And then as far as returning to full activity at home, in traditional surgeries, that was often six to eight weeks before we would allow the patients to go back to any sort of their normal activity level. Now, with minimally invasive surgery, that can be as little as a week before the patients are allowed to turn to full and active function. As little as a week? Yes. Now, when lung cancer metastasizes and spreads beyond the chest cavity, what are the options at that point? Unfortunately, that has pretty much taken the patient out of the realm of surgical treatment for the disease, and we're going to rely more on chemotherapy and the other options that I mentioned earlier for the treatment of the patient. Now, I understand that Deborah has a multidisciplinary oncology team approach for lung cancer patients. What does that encompass? At Deborah, we have the ability of putting together a panel of medical specialists, including those from oncology, pulmonary medicine, surgery such as myself, radiology, and pathology together to do a comprehensive review of each individual patient's case, and thus we can have a cohesive, defined treatment plan even sometimes before we see the patient. So basically they are being sent to you because their primary care doctor suspects or maybe has already sent for a chest x-ray and said, you need further testing and possibly further treatment. Most of our referrals are just as you mentioned, either an abnormal chest x-ray or an abnormal chest CAT scan, 
and the primary care doctor isn't quite sure what to do with it, therefore he's referred into our multidisciplinary group and we make further recommendations based on our impressions. Lung cancer, still, the, the statistics are dire. We have all this imaging, we have vastly improved surgical techniques and even treatment techniques, but it feels like we're chasing a runaway train. We are. In this day and age, we still have not been to the level of breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer. In fact, lung cancer will kill more people than all of those diseases combined this year. What do you feel as, a, as someone who lives, eats, breathes, sleeps thoracic surgery and this type of disease process? What do you think we need to do to kind of close that gap? Because we've made such strides in, in even pancreatic cancer, um, and yet lung cancer is still lagging. Screening becomes very important for us. It is perhaps the best way to detect the disease at earlier stages where surgery or any of the options become available for us. So screening, we always worry about uh, unnecessary radiation. Are we too worried about that? No, I don't think we are. It is estimated that in the next 10 years, almost 15% of cancers that will be occurring may be due to radiation therapy that is given during diagnostic testing today. So there's the rub in terms of the imaging to, to find it early on. There's that very appropriate caution because of that as well. Lung cancer isn't all you're focused on at Deborah. What other conditions are you treating? I'm involved in both the treatment and management of not only the surgical aspects of cancer operations, but those of diseases that occur in the chest and lungs, such as collapsed lungs, fluid inside the chest for any one of a number of reasons, fractured ribs. When it comes to the surgical aspects of treating anything regarding to the chest, we can offer it here at Deborah. You don't think of Deborah Heart and Lung as necessarily the place you're, you're going to come to with a complicated fractured rib, and yet that's going to impact your lungs. Where else would you go to make sure you're taking care of it? What's in the pipeline to help you in, in your work to improve patient outcomes and experience? Well, I think the screening will be fantastic for us. Um, and the U.S. Um, Preventative Task Force finally came up with recommendations in 2013 to allow screening of those patients 55 to 80 with a smoking history who may or may not still be smoking to undergo lung cancer screening. There was that study that used dogs to smell the breath of lung cancer patients, and the dogs were able to whiff out lung cancer with astonishing accuracy. I would love to have something like that occur for us. We are behind the curve, actually, when it comes to the diagnosis of lung cancer compared to breast cancer, colon cancer, even prostate cancer. For prostate screening now, a blood test. They've been able to identify a protein, an antigen, on the outside of prostate cancer cells that will show up in the blood. We have not been able to fully elucidate that when it comes to lung cancer. Is there a blame game? Because we know smoking is so tightly linked to the causality. And that, that would be shameful because it shouldn't be a factor. Yes, it does become frustrating as a healthcare professional that people still continue to smoke. Um, we know not only the effects as devastating as lung cancer, but heart disease, high blood pressure, so many other medical issues are tied in the smoking that um, it does become frustrating as a healthcare worker to still, still see smoking currently as active as it is in the United States. If you smoke when you were younger, 
had a big multi-pack-a-day habit, whatever it was. And then, I don't know, dropped it a couple of decades. You're living clean and eating organic food and doing everything you're supposed to. I mean, are your lungs going to recover from that? Well, I'm glad that you made the recovery and stopped smoking and, and are now leading a healthy life. But it is hypothesized that lung cancer comes from damaged scar tissue in the lungs. And once that damage is there, you are always at risk. If someone stops smoking for more than 10 years, their risk drops to half of that of a current smoker, but still remains elevated over someone who has never smoked before. All right, so what's in the pipeline to help you in your work and to improve patient outcomes and experience? Currently, we are looking at both surgical and medical aspects to help improve both the early diagnosis and prevention. So cancer screening becomes very important for us. The multidisciplinary programs that are offered also help us give a more pinpoint patient-centered approach that will often help start treatments earlier and hopefully lead to better outcomes. How does an interested patient get in touch with you and your team at Deborah to find out more about your work? Simply log on to your computer and demanddeborah.org. I'm Rasa Kate, and I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Kostick. He's the director of the Thoracic Surgery Program at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey.